electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Yields are higher after today's consumer prices came in slightly hotter than expected, while jobless claims continue to show strength last week. Stocks are trying to take it all in stride. Are the numbers enough to keep a November Fed hike on the table? And if so, would that spoil hopes for a year-end rally? Speaking of rising rates, J.P. Morgan, Wells, City, PNC are all reporting before the bell tomorrow. How much damage did the historic third quarter bond moves do? We'll get the action, the story, and the trade and earnings exchange. Plus, House Republicans nominating Steve Scalise for speaker, but the gavel is far from guaranteed. How this might play out with just over a month until a potential shutdown. But first, let's get the latest on these markets. Dom Chu with the numbers. A lot of fluctuation today, Dom. A lot of, and we just flipped to marginally red on the S&P 500 from marginally green on the S&P 500. But it's been a day of ups and downs. Uh, Right now, just about flat on the session, 43.75, the last trade for the broader S&P 500. At the highs of the session, the trading range had us up about nine points, down 14 points at the low. Now, if we were to tilt positive to close the day, it would, believe it or not, be a five-day winning streak for the S&P 500. But at 43.77, that's the state of play. The Dow Industrial is just about one-tenth of one percent decline there, 33,768, the last trade there. And the Nasdaq Composite outperforming, if you want to call it that, up about one-quarter of one percent, 25 points higher, 13,684. One of the thematic elements of today's trade is the continued onslaught being put on against the consumer staple stocks. Hormel Foods uh, gave an investor update long-term projections today. Street not liking it very much, down about 10%. The worst-performing stock in the S&P 500. Lamb Weston, just about maybe the second or third worst performer at at this point here, down 7%. Keurig Dr. Pepper uh, lows, 52-week lows here, down 4.5%, due in part to a price target cut by analysts over at Bernstein. Meanwhile, though, Kimberly Clark and Clorox, interesting move there. These were both upgraded by Bernstein to a more kind of neutral weighting, but you are seeing some at least upside for Kimberly Clark on a marginal basis. We'll watch those consumer staple stocks. And by the way, just to give you an idea of just how much the underperformance has been, this is going all the way back year to date. That gap is now kind of widened. You can see there the S&P 500 up 14 points, the consumer staples ETF down 11. That's how wide it's gotten. And then the stock of the day. We'll just give you a check on Birkenstock yesterday's hot IPO. Remember, the price was $46 per share. That was the IPO price. It opened at 41 and it's currently just about 38 half right now. That means from that high down to kind of where we are now, roughly 17% below the IPO price. So keep an eye on Birkenstock. We'll see whether or not there's any stability to that hot IPO. Not so much so in this day, today's trade or yesterday's as well, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. Ouch. All right, Dom, thanks. We'll see you soon. Dom Chu. Consumer prices coming in hotter than expected this morning, raising concerns about more Fed tightening. The CPI jumped four-tenths last month, up four, uh, 3.7% from a year ago. That's the headline. The core up three-tenths and is up more than 4% from a year ago. My next guest says the stickiness of services inflation keeps the prospect of another hike alive. Joining me now is Kathy Busjancic. She's chief economist at Nationwide. We're also joined by CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. 
Welcome to both of you. And Kathy, I'll just start with you because I think you're sort of kind of mirroring the street right now. You don't really expect another hike, but you're watching the services and thinking maybe. That's right, Kelly. Um, we, we, our baseline view is that they're done and they don't necessarily need to do more. Um, you know, the backup and, and long-term yields and tightening of financial conditions overall, you know, do some of the work for the Federal Reserve. Um, however, you know, we see these core service numbers and you look at the super core, uh, which strips out uh, rental inflation, um, it's still quite buoyant. And, um, you know, it was up six tenths on the month. And year on year, um, still relatively uh, elevated. So I think, you know, it doesn't give them quite the confidence they need yet to declare, yes, we're on our way to 2%. There's just still that stickiness there. Steve, the last time I saw Fed funds, they were uh, a little bit under 50% for maybe November, December for another hike. What, what do you see? Um, I see them actually quite a bit under 50%. I just looked at them. I want to make sure I give you the right quote here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, it's one of the things I'm impressed with today is how little the market repriced in a December rate hike. Rate hike. Um, you're at 11% for November, and you're at 38, call it 39% for December. I, I would have thought it would have been higher. It's been higher in the past, Um Obviously, that it could still go higher yet, but the two years been pretty well controlled. Um, I'm not sure I'm that concerned about this report. I was sort of impressed with how the overall uh, uh, core hung in there despite that what was a sort of anomalous rise in rents and the owner's equivalent rent. I have, and Kathy, maybe you, I'm wrong about this, the three-month annualized core at uh, uh, or sorry, uh, I'm going to double check my numbers here before I give them to you. But I have here the um, all items of spoonage under three month annualized two and a half percent. Kathy, you back me up on that. And I got um, three five or three six for the for the uh, three month annualized on the headline. I, I think that's OK for the Fed to pause here, I guess, is my is my bottom line on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I, I think it is OK for them to pause, too. I just think that, you know, when I. What I'm looking at is, is stripping out the rent. Yes, I, I think there was an anomalous increase, and, and our model suggests rental inflation should continue to resume a, a downward trend. But, um, you know, a lot of the uh, the reason that core CPI overall was held down was because core goods prices. Um, and, and when you take out rents, core services still running quite um, elevated. So, I, again, I, I don't think this tips them and, and suggests that they have to raise rates. I just think it increases the odds a little bit. And, yeah. and we'll have to see at the, you know, the PCE data, uh, particularly. Let me jump in here. We had a 30-year bond auction top of the hour. The 10-year yesterday was quite market moving. Let's bring in Rick Santelli to track the action over at the CME. Rick, on a day when yields are higher heading into the auction, what happened? Yes, yields high, going higher heading in, which means the price was dropping as investors were running in to try to catch those knives as they were falling. And believe me, they weren't very aggressive. D minus, I give this a dog minus. The yield, 4.837. And here's the kicker, okay? I was monitoring the one-issued market. The high yield in a one-issued market, five minutes before the bidding ended, was 4.80%. Then it moved up to 4.805. And that's where it ended, right around 1 o'clock Eastern. The yield, 4.837, was out of bounds to the original range of the one-issued, which means they had to scale it all the way back 
to fill in enough orders to take down the auction. Not good. And I'll hit the highlights. The biggest highlight was the dealer community ended up with 18.2% of the auction. That is the most they have taken since Dece of 21. You want the dealers to take smaller amounts because you want investors to take bigger amounts. And as you look at the charts, you see the intraday 30s. They were making new high yields going right in. You see a week to date of 30s. We broke the pattern of staircasing lower as yields shot up. And if you look at 10, same thing. We've broken the pattern. So you can talk about flight to safety, and I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But we are now seeing other influences post PPI and CPI that are seem taking precedent in investors' minds. And finally, how do I know all of that seems to be true? The dollar index also breaking its mold of staircasing lower by shooting up today and breaking the pattern. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, look at that dollar index uh, jumping back up towards almost 107. All right, Rick, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Kathy, I'll turn back to you. Uh, just, you know, the fact that these bond auctions are becoming such an event. I'm looking at the Dow, uh, which had briefly been positive an hour ago. Now it's session lows nearly down 129 points. I think it just goes to show the concern in the economy broadly and in markets every time we see rates a little bit higher than where we might be comfortable having them. You know, that's right. And, and you know, regardless of whether the Fed raises rates one more time or not, it, it's really this higher for longer mantra, right? It's they're going to be in no hurry to cut rates. That's, I think, the one thing the data really supports, that it's just a gradual grind lower in inflation. And it's going to be bumpy at times. And I do think that gives the equity market pause. You know, the discount rate is going higher and companies are going to have to start to refinance their debt this year. You know, they had a a reprieve there for a while. They locked in for, for longer, but now the, those debt has to be rolled over and it'll starting next year. So that's yeah. going to be painful. Steve, when I, you know, I, I think I'm going to just go ahead and put myself squarely in the lags are long and, and longer. They're not shorter. I'm not, I'm not going into that camp. You know, even just looking at the journal has a great uh, recap of the federal deficit. Now that we're kind of closed out the year, the, the average debt that we're uh, rate we're paying on our debt is still below 3%. I mean, it, the lags are going to come through on the budget. The lags are going to come through to corporate America. The lags are even going to come through to consumers here as they're padding thin. So I just think we, there's still a lot to reckon with. I think that's right. I like the way Kathy put it. Uh, the Fed doesn't have to do more here. And, and I think where the Fed is is in this zone of letting it ride. You keep hearing this idea of, of, of being patient. And I think that being patient is kind of a euphemism for Let's see what kind of destruction we've created here in terms of this credible surge in rates. And all of those things are on their mind. In fact, uh, you and Rafael Bostic Kelly think the same. He specifically mentioned corporate debt rollover in his commentary. I, I wonder, uh, just wondering out loud, Kelly, if there's some companies that may have to merge with other companies because, uh, sure. you know, uh, bad credits might merge with better credits in order to to stave off bankruptcy in a refinancing situation. Of course, nobody wants to take on a terrible company, but maybe there's one at the margin that would do better. So you might see some of that happening over time, which could uh, offset it. But ultimately, you're right. There are cliffs that happen. They are out in number of years, 24, 25, 26, when you look at uh, uh, the, the, um, the refinancing needs out there. But certainly, there's going to be a chill put on the kind of capital investment and expansion that would happen uh, at these current rates. And we're watching the 10-year as it yields back up towards about 4.7 percent, Kathy. And what, what would you add in terms of, 
you know, yes, we're going into an earnings season that looks like it should overall be supportive, but I think there's still major questions about 2024. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it's it's really going to come down to, I think, a few things. It, it's, it's inflation, number one, uh, and then the Fed reaction function and, and what's happening with rates, uh, but also the labor market and, and, and wage costs. And if companies um, have somehow found a way to adjust and profit margins withstand all of that, you know, that's really good news and would definitely applaud that. Um, but if if they start to feel some more of the pressure, even though profit margin profits may look a little better for this quarter, um, that could be a little bit more of a you know slowdown uh, signals for for next year. Yeah, no, and even this morning is a perfect illustration of that. Companies like Walgreens, even Delta, those that are talking about expense control and doing it quite well, are, are seeing their shares rewarded. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you both, Kathy Busjancic and our sure. own Steve Leisman. Dow's down 161. Meantime, we've got updates on the Sam Bankman-Fried trial. Kate Rooney has the story. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kelly. So we're in a lunch break right now. Cross-examination has kicked off. The defense team still coming up pretty slow. We have not had any fireworks so far. They are jumping around a little bit. It comes after yesterday where they really did not land any of the cross-examination. And for other key witnesses, it's a slow start, Kelly. They are jumping around in terms of the timeline here. And there hasn't really been a clear line of questioning so we're watching that, but it does not seem that they've, they've really landed any of the questions here. A lot of talk about signal. So these executives set many of their messages, which is the main way they communicated these encrypted messaging apps, to auto-delete. So the defense kind of hinting at the fact that some of these conversations we don't have evidence of, that it's, it's Caroline Ellison's word versus Bankman-Fried's defense here. We also learned about another boyfriend that Caroline Ellison had. She was dating Sam Bankman-Fried at some point. During the conversations today in the cross-examination, she talked about another uh, former employee from FTX and Alameda that she was also dating. We didn't get a name. One notable admission, she said they could have been better leaders in terms of the Alameda side and that Sam Bankman-Fried may not have known about certain issues between bank accounts. There was a sidebar yesterday that we just learned about in the court transcript. They, The uh, prosecution went up to the, the judge and said that Sam Bankman-Fried was reacting to certain comments that Caroline Ellison made, he was laughing at certain points. And the judge scolded the defense team and said, you need to speak to your client about that. It could affect the jury, it could affect the witness. And so some tense words from the judge saying, basically talk to your client and tell him to stop reacting. That is something that, that went on yesterday, but we're just finding out about today, Kelly. But we'll bring you any updates as we get them. Wow, Kate, thank you very much. A saga indeed, Kate Rooney reporting. Coming up, we're on watch for the White House's next move in the Israel-Hamas war, how those efforts might be complicated without a House speaker, and what it all means for the surging deficit. We'll ask one strategist next. Plus, a closer look at the health of the consumer. What did we glean from Delta's earnings this morning? How retailers are revving up for the holiday season? And the quality companies our trader is looking to buy in this environment. As we head to break, here's a look at markets which have just tilted towards session lows. The Dow down 175 or half a percent, similar for the S&P now, and the NASDAQ just shy of that. Look at the Russell 2000s. They're down almost 2% today. This has been a key benchmark for a lot of money managers trying to figure out if there's a weakening signal coming from all the data. Not helping is that 10-year note over there, almost 470, the 30-year, uh, up 15 basis points on the day after that weak auction top of the hour that Rick Santelli brought us. That seems to be why uh, the mood here has suddenly soured. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange.
on CNBC. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. The Israel-Hamas war is entering its sixth day of fighting as Secretary of State Antony Blinken travels to Israel, offering reassurance of America's support to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. NBC's Ali Velshi is in Ashkelon, Israel, with the very latest. Ali, thanks for joining us. What can you tell us? Uh, Kelly, we're about a few kilometers from the uh, Gaza border behind us. It's actually been a quiet hour or so, but typically what you see is, uh, is rockets going up uh, from, from Gaza and uh, the Iron Dome intercepting them here. Every now and then you'll hear some thuds. That's probably the missiles hitting Gaza. The air assault and the sea assault on Gaza continues in shifts. Typically the Air Force, we hear the jets above us for a while, then you, you don't hear the jets and you know you hear the thuds, you know they're coming from there. Uh, Anthony Blinken in the region uh, expressing uh, strong support for Israel, but at the same time making a few other stops to regional leaders to see how everybody can keep this under control. There's a second message going on, and that's with the battle groups, the ships that are pulling up. Two battle groups, uh, our task forces are pulling up uh, off the uh, Mediterranean. The United Kingdom is sending some too. That's not for this fight in Gaza. That's to warn Lebanon and Syria, really, the, the Iranians and the Russians, uh, not to get involved in this fight. Let this play out the way it does. And how it's going to play out is that there are uh, hundreds of thousands of troops amassing on the border behind me, ready to go in on a ground incursion into Gaza. That is fraught with peril. One of the problems is that there are uh, between 100 and 150 hostages. They're very worried that once they go in, uh, those hostages, the families are worried that once they go in, the lives of those hostages will be imperiled because they may be used as human shields or the, uh, the, 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 the resistance to letting them go will, uh, will increase. So the families are saying, get our people out first, use negotiation if you have to, but the rest of Israel is really angry uh, and, and really fearful, and they want that ground incursion to start. For the moment, no ground incursion has started, no ground offensive has started, but lots of missiles flying above us. Kelly? Ali, thank you very much. Please keep us posted. Ali Velshi reporting for NBC tonight. Meantime, from a war in the Middle East to a looming government shutdown, it's a tricky time for Congress to be without a speaker. And it looks like an agreement on a new leader won't be easy. House Republicans voted yesterday to nominate Majority Leader Steve Scalise to the role. But since then, he has struggled to gather the 217 necessary votes to secure that gavel. For more here, let's bring in James Lucier, founding partner of policy research firm Capital Alpha Partners. James, a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. What's the latest oh, that you're hearing? It's great to be here, hearing? Kelly. I thank love you. your show. Oh, thank you. What's the latest that you're hearing? Well, the latest I'm hearing is that Speaker McCarthy met with the House Republican Conference today 
and outlined some plans. He outlined a possible strategy for getting appropriations bills done. He tried to answer any questions that they had. He said that he wasn't going to make side deals with any of the members as Kevin McCarthy did when McCarthy was running for speaker. But the reality is that I don't think he moved any significant number of members. He's still got more than 100 members to go before he can lock up the 217 he needs. So we're all expecting this drama to take some time. There's been a suggestion that some Jewish Democratic members might uh, support Pat McHenry as an interim speaker for a period of time, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, end of the year, just to make sure that the House is no longer paralyzed and that we can move forward on a package of aid for Israel and and perhaps also Ukraine and other purposes. Interesting. So instead of throwing uh, wide support behind Scalise, it sounds like people are, are sort of pulling back, maybe looking at keeping McHenry in this temporary position for some time. But how much authority does he or Congress have if this remains the status quo? Well, McHenry is speaker pro tem, but the rules are tricky. Right now, he's speaker pro tem under a special 9-11 era emergency succession rule that says that if you are on a list that the speaker keeps in his desk drawer, you get to be speaker for three legislative days. But it's possible to be designated speaker for more purposes in a longer period of time. And you can also be voted in as speaker, in which case uh, you have many more powers. So I think it's quite possible that the House will choose to vote for McHenry as speaker pro tem with a more complete package of authority to um, handle appropriations bills and continuing resolutions and other bills in the usual way. That's not ideal. It doesn't mean he has enormous leverage to move the Republican conference, but it certainly means that they'd be in a position to move expeditiously on these emergency bills. And what would it mean for keeping the government funded past the November 17th deadline and avoiding a shutdown? I'm worried about that. I mean, I'm not hearing anything right now about a strategy for a continuing resolution. Um, I think that whatever shutdown we see on November 17th is likely to be a relatively short one, less than a week or two, because there is a discharge petition ready that would be able to take a Senate-passed continuing resolution and move it to the House floor, where it would almost certainly pass with a bipartisan vote. The problem is, though, that I'm aware of only one discharge petition that's available. So this continuing resolution would essentially be a one-and-done type of thing, and we'd have to find some new way to get to the end of the year. And I don't know how much you or, or folks down there typically follow bond yields. This is all kind of new in a way. Uh, but look at what happened just the top of this hour. They issued 30-year debt. Uh, there wasn't as much demand as hoped. This is part of the Treasury having to upsize its auctions to fund the deficit. All of this has been much bigger than expected this year and could persist into 2024. So at some point, I do wonder how much pressure the market will put on policymakers and what that will even accomplish, given the dynamics you're describing. Well, Kelly, you've identified a very important uh, point. This is a huge shock to Washington. We've gone on for decades where it never really mattered how much we spent. It never really mattered how big the deficits were. The United States was always able to finance those deficits. But with the massive expansion of debt we've seen during the COVID pandemic, it seems as if a line has been crossed. We don't have the debt coverage ratios we used to have. We don't have the financial flexibility. 
uh, suddenly those uh, credit ratings from the major agencies may actually be meaningful. And I think that Washington is very well aware that the bond markets are paying attention. And Washington's also aware that uh, the short-term Treasury bills are rolling over in large numbers mm-hmm. and we'll have to refinance them at some much higher rate than we're paying now. Exactly, which will increase the pressure as well. Uh, very can't, can't really see a path from here to there. James, we'll bring you back uh, if you would Great. as Glad this plays back. out. Thank you so much, James Lucier. You're joining my favorite, us. Kelly. Love to come back. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. Joining us from Capital Alpha Partners. Still to come, negotiations between actors and media studios are breaking down, even as the writers ratified their new contract this week. How the surprising setback will affect the media stocks, that's ahead. And as we go to break, here's a look at that 30-year long bond yield we mentioned at 485 today. We just mentioned they had the highest yield at auction top of the hour since May 2007. 15 basis point increase throughout the day now, and that's putting pressure on stocks, which have turned sharply lower. The Dow down almost 200 points at the lows. Uh, Half percent declines across the board. Here's a quick look at the sector map. Energy and technology remain the only two sectors in the green. Utilities underperforming again with a third of those names down 20 percent or more from their recent highs. More on the exchange right after this. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Contessa Brewer with your CNBC News update. The U.S. and Qatar have agreed to stop Iran from accessing a $6 billion account for humanitarian aid. The Treasury Department briefed House Democrats about it today, according to three sources for NBC News. And when asked, Secretary Antony Blinken said of the funds, we retain the right to freeze them. President Biden has been facing mounting pressure on the Hill to stop the Iran money transfer amid scrutiny of Iran's links to Hamas. And the White House is negotiating with Israel and Egypt to arrange safe passage for Americans to leave Gaza, according to a senior U.S. official who says there are between 500 and 600 Palestinian Americans living there. New Jersey Democratic Senator Robert Menendez is facing more charges in a superseding indictment. The longtime lawmaker is accused of accepting bribes on behalf of a foreign government and acting as a foreign agent. Menendez allegedly provided sensitive information to Egypt and took other secret steps to aid its government. He pled not guilty to corruption charges last month, Kelly. Indeed. Contessa, thank you very much. Contessa Brewer. Coming up, credit card spending sank last week 12% from the week prior, according to Citi. And remember, September already came in as the weakest month of the year for card spend. What does it all say about the health of the consumer? We'll look across travel, retail, and the trades next. Dow's down 228. And now, CNBC Trend Tracker.
Welcome back to The Exchange. We're getting multiple reads on the consumer front today. Delta, Domino's, Walgreens all out with earnings this morning. Shares of Delta down about 2% after they revised full-year guidance down. Domino's a slight top-line miss, although they do see a turnaround in U.S. comp sales on the horizon. And Walgreens gaining almost 6% now on cost-cutting comments from the call. Target also slightly higher after an upgrade to buy over at B of A. They're bullish on improving traffic and some new products. Let's take a deeper dive into what's next for this sector, starting with our Phil LeBeau, who sat down with Delta CEO Ed Bastian and is here to dig into those results. Boca Capital's Kim Forrest joins us with her trades today. She's sticking with names that, quote, create consumer delight over and over again. And with less than three months to go till Christmas, Courtney Reagan will see what we can glean from holiday hiring trends. Welcome all, Phil. Let's kick it off with you. What do we learn today? Well, Kelly, what we learned is that Delta still is very optimistic about where they're seeing the consumer as we head towards the end of the year. Let's talk first about this narrowing of the guidance in terms of full-year earnings expectations and free cash flow. Yes, Delta did narrow its expectation after increasing it just a couple of months ago, now expecting to earn between $6 and $6.25 for the year. Previously, the guidance was $6 to $7, so a little bit of a narrowing there. Free cash flow, $2 billion for the full year, was previously expecting to bring in $3 billion. The reason for these changes, higher jet fuel costs, and they'll really see that in the fourth quarter, as well as higher maintenance costs. In terms of bookings, Delta likes what they're seeing right now with the consumer. In terms of domestic and international travel, there is still robust demand there. Corporate travel bookings are increasing. So we asked Ed Bastian, do you see the consumer slowing down at all? Here's what he told us on Squawk Box. We in the industry do see it in certain parts of our, of our industry on the lower fare side of the business, but we're a very different carrier than those. You know, we got premium, which is continuing to drive the strength of the business. We've got international, which was gangbusters. And as you take a look at shares of Delta, keep in mind that the other story that we asked Ed Bastian about that is not getting a whole lot of attention this, today, but it will over the next couple of weeks, is the changes that have been made to the Sky Miles Frequent Flyer Program. They remember they announced these changes to make it more restrictive, Kelly. That was, uh, what, three or four weeks ago. Immediate backlash. Ed Bastian said a couple weeks ago, okay, we're going to make some changes. We'll tweak it again. I asked him this morning, he said, we're not quite ready. We'll hear about that over the weeks to come. All right, Phil, because we have you, got to ask about this surprise expansion. Surprise to me, at least. The UAW, for once, doing this midweek at this Kentucky Ford plant. What's the significance? Well, this is Sean Fain of the UAW keeping the automakers guessing about when there may be strikes and where there may be strikes. And in this case, this is a gut punch to Ford because this is a huge and extremely profitable plan for Ford. The Kentucky truck plant is where they build the Super Duty F-Series trucks, the F-250 to 550. Those are huge profit drivers along with the Expedition and the Lincoln Navigator. The company's 8,700 UAW workers at the Kentucky truck plant, they walked off the job last night. This plant is responsible for just under 20% of Ford's U.S. production. And in terms of overall strikes by the UAW now in the United States, there are 33,000 big three UAW members who are on strike. All of these plants, by the way, as you take a look at this, I think it's up to 44 plants. Most of them are parts and distribution centers for Stellantis and General Motors. But there are six final assembly plants in there, including three that are operated by Ford. The ripple effect of this, as you take a look at shares of Ford, Stellantis, and GM, Kelly, we've seen now more than 5,000 workers at other facilities that are not on strike that the automakers have had to lay off. 
because of the ripple effect, because either stampings aren't needed, parts aren't needed. The, the work is not happening because certain plants are on strike. And I suspect we will see those layoffs increase over the next couple of weeks. Ooh, all right, Phil, thank you. We appreciate it on both fronts. Airlines, autos, Phil LeBeau. Let's dig in a little bit more on the consumer now and how to trade this very challenged retail space into year end. My next guest says despite a 33% year to date, this teen retailer has more room to run. Got 10 seconds to guess it. Joining me now is Kim Forrest, uh, Chief Investment Officer at Boca Capital Partners. Kim, welcome to you. You can go ahead and reveal the name and, and maybe this will help uh, be a, a, a bellwether of, of how to play the consumer right now. Sure. Well, this is always for the longer term investor, um, but we believe that a company like Urban Outfitters knows what they're doing because they've been around a long time. They um, have been improving themselves over and over again and then adding more brands and more um, slices of the pie. But what they really do is regardless of if you're an Urban, Outfit, uh, Urban Outfitters shopper or a free people buyer or an anthro home buyer, they delight you. When you walk into their stores or look at their online presence, you discover things you didn't even know you needed and you buy them. And that's what I'm looking for in companies is that they can have a product management or in this case, a merchandising um, formula where they can over and over again, regardless of when times are changing or tastes are changing, that they either keep up with it or they're ahead of those taste changes and they have the product that people want and they buy it. That's a perfect segue to talk about Coca-Cola, which is one of your other names here. I'm a little surprised. And listen, I'm one of the believers in this whole GLP you know, phenomenon. And maybe they're less exposed than Pepsi because they don't have the snacks, but it looks like sugary drinks are one of the places people cut back the most. So between that sure. and just general uh, consumer trends, why would you stick with the stock? Sure. Well, they are really more than uh, carbonated beverages and super sweet carbonated beverages at that. They're a global retailer that modifies their product um, for each country that they're in so that they know that they can delight those customers. But they're also expanding into coffee and alcoholic beverages. And those are something that if you would have looked at Coca-Cola 10 years ago, you would have bet that they would never have done that. But what they're doing is delighting shareholders at the same time by applying their know-how of how to bring products to market that people want to buy over and over again. And they're doing it in adjacent areas, not just carbonated beverages. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, down 17% year to date. Um, the last name here kind of brings us back into the more traditional territory. We often we talk to you about tech stocks, obviously your background in semis. You know, is AMD a consumer play or is this just kind of, you know, as, as we kind of look to bolster our strategies into year end, just a place that you think investors should be looking? Well, I think you should always be looking in semis and tech because those are the, the, the items that actually bring technology to either a company or a person. All technology is delivered on a semiconductor. It's just that easy. But I was including AMD in this group because they too have the customer delight, although it's a different customer. It's the designer of, um, of a data center or maybe it's the designer of a PC Regardless, this company knows how to make a product that, um, that its customers want. And that's really why I picked AMD. And they've changed from kind of being a second tier um, P 
PC provider, or even uh, I think they were one of the first ones that did um, graphic chips as well. And they've really upped their game, and it shows. And it shows that they can do it over and over again. Lisa Sue really is a rock star there. Yeah. No, and they often are second fiddle to Netflix and kind of the broad discourse, but you make the case compellingly for, for sticking with this name. Having a nice year already. Kim, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time today. Kim Thanks. Forrest with Boca Capital. Let's uh, look ahead to the key holiday season for retailers now with Amazon looking to hire the most workers of any company in more than a decade. It's not the only one on the hunt either, but there are some major challenges. Courtney Reagan joins us with those details. Court? Hey, Cal. So, you know, it could be a tricky holiday season for physical retail for a number of reasons. Store employees are asked to help in-store shoppers, but also fulfill online orders from in-store while potentially dealing with higher theft and violence associated with that. And while many retailers are actively hiring thousands of seasonal workers right now, many aren't looking for as many as they were last year. The total number of seasonal hires is expected to fall to the lowest level since 2008, 410,000 versus 680,000 just last year. This is according to estimates from Challenger Gray in Christmas. Now, Target is looking to hire 100,000 seasonal workers. That's the same as the last two years. UPS is hiring less than half of last year, though. Macy's hiring 38,000, just about 3,000 less than last year. Dick Sporting Goods, about the same. Amazon, though, as you pointed out, Kelly, looking for 250,000 seasonal workers. That's 100,000 more than last year. But total unemployment is at 3.8%, so pretty low available labor. But then again, there are 4.1 million Americans that are currently part-time for economic reasons that might be hired, another 5.5 million that aren't in the labor force but want a job. Still, it's unclear if retailers will be able to find the workers they need that are willing to deal with much more than they had in the past without a lot of extra compensation sweeteners that I've seen in past holiday seasons with maybe higher wages or additional gift certificates or bonus opportunities. I'm not seeing a lot of that in the hiring announcements this time around point and uh, indicative of how the labor market has cooled somewhat. Courtney, for now, thanks, our Courtney Reagan. Still to come, the actors are suddenly nowhere near a deal, as negotiations between SAG-AFTRA and the Hollywood studios were just suspended, each side blaming the other for the breakdown. We have those details next. And before we go, let's take a look across the markets where all 11 sectors of the S&P are now in the red. Energy and tech giving up their earlier gains as the Dow dives 264 points and yields climb uh, still throughout the hour. The 30-year now at 4876, the 10-year 471. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange Talks, breaking down between Hollywood actors and the studios late last night after the writers just sealed their own deal. Julia Borson brings us the latest as the actor strike, Julia, now enters its fourth month. Is that right? That's right, Kelly. And negotiations collapsed last night. In fact, Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos just moments ago saying in an onstage interview that while Netflix agrees with giving success-based bonuses on streaming, he says that what SAG demanded was a bridge too far. Now, the AMPTP, that's the association that Netflix is part of, saying, quote, it is clear that the gap between the AMPTP and SAG-AFTRA is too great and conversations are no longer moving us in a productive direction. The AMPTP saying SAG is demanding a viewership bonus that would cost more than $800 million per year, which the AMPTP says would, quote, 
create an untenable economic burden. Burden. Meanwhile, the Actors Guild is pushing back, saying the studios overstated the cost of their proposal by 60 percent, adding, quote, they have done the same with AI, claiming to protect performer consent, but continuing to demand consent on the first day of employment for use of a performer's digital replica for an entire cinematic universe or any franchise project. Now, actors are returning to the picket lines today as Hollywood's labor issues have cost the economy more than $5 billion, according to a Milken estimate. This news putting pressure on Warner Brothers, Discovery and Paramount in particular. Take a look at Warner Brothers shares down 5 percent, Paramount down 3 percent. And meanwhile, Cinemax and Cinemark and IMAX shares are also lower amid concerns about an ongoing strike, further delaying film releases and hurting the film promotion, given that actors are not out there, Kelly, promoting their films right now. Yeah, another surprising twist uh, in a year that's been full of them. Julia, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Julia Borston. Coming up, the XLF taking a leg lower as yields rise. And we'll preview bank results from J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo and PNC, which are looming before the bell in the morning. Also want to draw your attention to the S&P 600 small cap index. Bank of America's Michael Hartnett flagging 1100 last weekend as a key technical level, saying if we break below it, he considers that the credit crunch recession trade. Uh, many are watching it as well. We're 22 points above that right now with a two and a quarter percent decline today. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Big banks and some super regionals like PNC start reporting before the bell tomorrow, officially kicking off third quarter earnings season. Let's get the numbers to watch and the trades. We're joined by Chris Grisanti. He's MAI Capital Management's chief equity strategist. Great to have you back, Chris. Let's dive right in and let's start with PNC. Regional banks remain a top worry spot for the market. This Shares of this super regional haven't fully recovered from the March crisis. Investors are watching loan loss provisions, balance sheet impact of higher rates, Maybe if they'll have an efficiency plan to keep expense growth in check, as some analysts speculate. Chris, you optimistic or uh, what, do you, what would you do with the stock here? Kelly, it's good to be with you again. Hi. Um, there's two things I'm looking at for all these banks in this part of the cycle. One is net interest income and how they're handling that. And everybody's looking at that. And the other is credit issues, which nobody is looking at. So let's look at PNC first. First, Net interest income should be on the weak side, but they've already telegraphed that. And I think it's only going to be off 2 to 3%. And a number like that would be well received by the street. So, so we're pretty confident there that, that it should be a clean report. On the credit side, we're going to be looking, because it's, as you mentioned, a super regional. We're going to be looking at the commercial real estate book. We're not too afraid, but we're going to be listening for that on the call. In other words, I think it's setting up for a nice PNC report tomorrow. I like it. All right, down 23% year to date. Of course, the action today is not helping sentiment into these results. But then there's JP Morgan. Listen, the March crisis, practically a blip for them, up over 40% from the market bottom a year ago. Uh, the bank is best positioned for higher for longer, Bank of America thinks. They have strength for buybacks. They're even competing with the flight to private credit with the asset management arm. And I mean, I have to imagine you'd be at least holding this one. 
Yeah, we, we like this one. But of course, you, you're saying all those good things, but but tell us something we don't know. So right. The problem with being J.P. Morgan is that they're the market leader and expectations get set real high. Now, having said that, again, back to my two factors, the net interest income there should be quite strong. They have so many levers at J.P. Morgan to pull to keep depositors there, even if they don't offer them the absolutely top rates. So we're kind of confident on net interest income. The interesting thing about J.P. Morgan even if you don't own the stock, you should listen to the call because they touch on so many parts of the macro economy. We want to hear about their loan book. What are they seeing in commercial real estate? They have one of the largest credit card books. We're, we're thinking things are still benign there, but we're listening for the commentary for next year, and that's going to be crucial. Still, I'm happy owning this stock in front of the report. Things look pretty good right now. I'm already getting people saying they're just looking forward to hearing from Jamie Dimon. Maybe he can calm some jitters right. after these Treasury auctions uh, and with all the concerns that we have. All right. That brings us to Wells Fargo. A little bit different you know, story. They clawed back their March losses. They've been in decline since July, though. They're in the midst of a reset. Feels like they've been in one for a long time. They're focusing on wealth management, capital markets, credit cards. But net interest income could continue to decline, Bank of America says, while expenses grow. Uh, that's not the picture you know, investors are looking for at the moment. That's right. This is of the three. This is the one I'm kind of most afraid of for tomorrow's report. And I wouldn't, if I had a choice, I wouldn't be an owner going into the report. So it's one of the better performing banks since a year ago, even though it's been struggling in the last month or two. Um, the bad news coming into earnings is that expectations are pretty high, that they've managed their net interest income probably better than a lot of the other banks, and they've been rewarded for that. The problem is looking towards 2024, I think it's going to be a much more difficult uh, job to do. And so I think that the earnings will be okay, but I'm a little afraid of the commentary looking forward for Wells Fargo. So, so for that, I, I would take a little step back. Also, their West Coast exposure is obviously large, and we, I really want to hear about their loan book and whether there's starting to be the slightest hint of problems there. So, so that will be, we'll be listening carefully for the commentary on the call. All right. Elsewhere, the home builders, you know, I, I so wanted to get you on a week or two ago when you first said, you know what, maybe I'm bailing on this trade. Ever since, they've, they just look worse and worse. Um, I, I didn't even check uh, since 1 p.m. when yields really started to pop. I can only imagine they're down 5% this morning. Um, are you out of the, are you out of them now? I mean, what do you think is going on here? We're out of almost all of them now. We we still own one home builder um, that we really like, and we probably will carry it through. But but Kelly, what we're talking about here is. Uh, an industry that the demographics are just terrific. Not enough folks own homes, really, for the last 15 years. Uh, new, uh, you know, kids have been staying with their parents and they're finally leaving the nest. They're finally buying starter homes. It's a good place to be. Having said that, that's okay at 6.5% mortgage rates. But when you start talking about 8 or God forbid, even 9% mortgage rates, that's a problem. And so we've done awfully well, as you know, in the stocks. We liked them a year ago and mortgage rates started to go up. They were got absolutely trashed, but now they're up 60, 70%. I think it's time to take profits, you know, and discretion is the better part of valor and, yeah. and live to fight another day. Absolutely. And wanted to make sure we mentioned that on a day where they are down more than 4% now as, as those rate concerns intensify. Chris, thanks for all your time. It's good to see you again. You too, Kelly. Nice Chris to be with Rissanti, you. MAI Capital Management, and that does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Did you hear that? 
That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Go give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, <laughs> that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Go give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.